Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by pastoral resident Ian Mulraney. Oh, hi. I didn't see you there. I was just reading my Bible, Romans chapter 14 through chapter 15, verse 13. Say, why don't you uh, open your Bible up and we can read it together. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, 
so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's talk about what we just read a little bit. Uh, this is a pretty lengthy passage. Um, it's also going to be one of the final arguments Paul makes in the book of Romans as we've tracked our way through it from the beginning. And this is actually one of the climaxes of the book where Paul is taking all the arguments he has laid out before from the very beginning about bringing two groups of Christians together, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, and forming them into this one beautiful family of God. And that's what this passage is about, is about not letting our differences separate us. So let's begin. I want you to picture a broken piece of glass or a ruddy stone that you might find on the ground. It can be a sizable stone. If you find that by itself, you might think it's garbage, you might think it's something not worth looking at, you might see that it's broken and maybe dangerous. But if you're familiar with the art form of a mosaic, what you find is that mosaics are actually composed of broken pieces of glass or rocks um, or just small fragments like that. The mosaic can be something that is incredible to look at. In the Hagia Sophia, the mosaic of Jesus, you can't even tell it's a mosaic. You think that it's a painting. It fits together so well and is just so beautiful. I'm not just saying this for the sake of art, but I'm saying that the, the body of Christ is like a mosaic. We're individuals who have our flaws and our weaknesses and, uh, you know, have our own way of being. But when we put are put together into the body of Christ, we form this beautiful picture. So let's dive into scripture, and we're going to dig our way through. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. That's chapter 14, verse 1. And actually, we're going to pause there. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. What are disputable matters that Paul thinks that we quarrel over? Well, I have a visual that is represented by these three circles here. The image is one big circle with different rings that divide it up into three separate circles. And what this circle represents is the idea, like everything that is part of our Christian belief system, our Christian walk. What does it mean to be a Christian? And so we have three different rings of levels of importance for um, what these beliefs are and what they mean. In the innermost circle, uh, it's labeled orthodoxy. You might have heard others teach it as the essentials. 
that middle circle is if you strip away everything else from Christianity about how you live, um, what we're supposed to eat or drink or do, if you take away all the exterior stuff and just get it down to the core of what is Christianity and what uh, does a Christian believe, that's what is in this circle. It's the core. Things that belong in the orthodoxy circle, that there's one God who created everything. There, He had a son uh, named Jesus who came in the flesh as the Messiah. He was crucified in physical body, died, and rose from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That there is the Spirit of God that works amongst uh, his people in the world, and that the church is the tool that he is using to uh, fulfill his purposes until Christ comes again. That our salvation has been worked out in the good plan of God through the gospel. This is the core. Uh, those are the main big ideas. There's a couple other things you could fit in, but the essentials are right there. If you move out a circle, you'll get to the convictions. Um, I'm going to be honest, convictions is the hardest to define, and that makes it tricky because that's what we're going to be talking about the most tonight uh, in light of our passage. But convictions is hard to define because it's in the middle, so sometimes it's easy for us to let things bleed over into one of the other circles. Um, sometimes convictions seem like they're essentials, or essentials seem like they're convictions, or our third circle, which is preferences, you can get the same thing going on. But convictions are their stances that Christians can take on lifestyle and cultural issues with the intention of honoring God. Um, an example could be swearing. Uh, maybe one person thinks it's okay to say uh, the F word or other words like that, and another Christian is very uncomfortable and thinks it's a sin to say that kind of language. Uh, there are things that two Christians can have different stances on, and both could make a scriptural case for why they believe that way, um, but still be Christians that love Jesus, believe in God, uh, or have the Holy Spirit working in and through them. Important issues, but not necessarily uh, what makes or breaks your Christian faith. And then lastly, in the outer circle is the preferences. And these are usually, there might be one or two that are in the Bible, but they're usually extra biblical matters that can mean a whole lot to us. They might be very, very important issues for us, but they might not have a whole lot of weight to the rest of the body. An example could be if you really believe that we're only supposed to listen to Switchfoot songs during Sunday worship right? Um, maybe you became a Christian because of Switchfoot, and so you want to always worship to their music, but you're not going to make be able to win a case that all Christians in all time periods, in all places, need to use Switchfoot. And that can be your preference. Other preferences are like Bible translations, or time of day that you have church, or even what day of the week. Um, there are things that are just part of our Christian life that can change from congregation to congregation, country to country. So hopefully that gives you a good picture um, of what our orthodoxy convictions and preferences are supposed to be. Now, a little aside before we get um, 
into our passage again. This is about cultural issues, like I said, cultural issues and lifestyle issues. And it's not about moral issues. I think morality is the one thing that is excluded from what Paul is talking about in this passage. And what I mean by that is, say mom says, ooh, the house is really messy and I'm getting frustrated by it. So the son has an idea and he wants to help mom feel better. So to honor his mom, he decides he's going to light a fire and burn the whole entire house down, right? What he did is not helpful, it's not right, it creates more problems, and it's not what the mom wanted. The mom wanted him to clean the house. In the same way, we as Christians can't use our conviction language that we're establishing here and be like, I'm really convicted that I want to honor God by killing all Muslims, or I'm convicted that God has given me freedom in Christ, so I'm going to, I have the freedom to sleep with whoever I want, um, whenever I want. Neither of those things is what this passage is talking about. It's simply about how do you live uh, in your life, like what are the cultural and lifestyle choices that are making up your Christian walk, and what are the key theological things you're believing, not about am I harming other people or blatantly disobeying God's laws. Okay, with that being said, let's go back to chapter 14 and talk about it some more. Again, we're going to be thinking mostly about convictions, and the key thing to remember is that a conviction is that somebody holds that idea because they want to honor God. So Paul says, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. None of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so he could be Lord of both living and the dead. So, some cultural background on this issue. You might have read or heard this passage and heard about the food and the days, and you say, this is stupid, none of this is relevant to me. And you might be right, but it was very relevant to the Roman church. Remember how I talked about there were two different groups coming together, Gentiles and Jews? Well, Jewish believers had a very strict set of food laws that God had given them in the Torah. They were told that they were only allowed to eat certain kinds of animals, that certain kinds of animals were unclean, that you weren't supposed to eat pigs or bats or shrimp or other animals that were associated with death and bad hygiene. Um, you also were not supposed to eat animals or any meat that still had the blood in it. Uh, God made that rule with Noah, going all the way back to Noah, that blood belongs to him, so don't eat anything with blood. 
And in the more modern sense of the Roman world, Romans would sacrifice animals to pagan gods, and then some of the meat that got sacrificed was then sold in the marketplace. And so some of the meat that you might buy and eat had actually been sacrificed to Zeus or Hera or one of the other pagan deities, which as a Christian, you say does not exist and you're not supposed to honor above God, going back to the first and second commandments. So there were members of the Roman churches of, of the first century Christian churches that held to these food laws made it very, very important that um, they did not break what God had passed down through the generations. They believed scripture and they decided to live their lives according to it. On the other hand, there were those, mainly among Gentile Christians, but not entirely because there were some Gentiles who converted and read the scriptures and decided they wanted to live their life fully as God had dictated it. And so they started following those laws as well. But there were some Gentiles and some Jewish believers like Paul himself who believed that Christ uh, had re made a new covenant, that the old covenant was no longer the way that we uh, connected our relationship to God, but that our relationship to God was now through the blood of Jesus that had been spilled once for all people of all time. And so because of that, you didn't have to worry about unclean animals per se, because Christ had made all things clean as he had actually taught that you were free to eat meat that was sacrificed to Roman deities. You were free to eat meat that had blood in it. If you really liked rare steak, you were free to eat even bacon, which was forbidden by Jewish law because Christ was what connected us to God, not the law anymore. And so there were two different ways of eating meals in one church. And so the temptation was to judge each other and to think that one group was doing it wrong and did not belong. And so Paul writes to address this. And the things that he says is that it doesn't matter whether you are eating the meat or whether you're not eating the meat. Because whether you're eating it, you do it because you love God and you want to serve him. And if you don't eat the meat, it's doing it because you love God. You want to obey his law that he had given. You want to serve him. You're trying to honor God. So the church is tasked with this mission of not judging and condemning each other. Um, and even beyond that, Paul starts to use, throw these terms around, which are, they were meant, I think, to stir things up a little bit, but he doesn't say Jews and Gentiles. He says strong faith and weak faith. And the funny thing is, look at who Paul says has the stronger faith. If I were to look at somebody who just eats whatever, and somebody who has a very strict diet, who has certain utensils um, set aside to make sure that they have very kosher, clean food, that uh, knows where their food is coming from, uh, when it was slaughtered, where it came from, how old it is, how to prepare it, has all these things, uh, these rules set up. I would think that person who has all the rules compared to the person who does just does whatever they must have the strong faith because they know um, they have a very strict set way of doing this. But Paul says the opposite. Paul says that the more barriers you have to jump through to believe God, uh, 
loves you and that you're honoring God, that is the weaker faith. He's not saying it's bad. He's not saying you're out of the kingdom. But he's saying your faith is weak because it relies on the crutches of performance and law. Whereas the people who just know God's grace is for them, that God's love is for them, that they can eat whatever, their faith is strong because they really, truly know Jesus and believe that he loves them. But so what happens? What's the, what's the, what's the solution? Are the weak faith supposed to get stronger? Are they supposed to lay the law aside so that way they can then have strong faith? That's not what Paul says. What? Why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Verse 11, it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let's stop passing judgment on one another. Okay? No judging is allowed. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. What does he mean by a stumbling block? I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Paul goes on to talk about us making every effort for mutual edification. We need to sacrifice for one another to build the body up. So he says that if you are cool with people eating meat, or, and if you eat the meat yourself, but when you have church um, and you get together for dinner afterwards and you know that half the congregation doesn't think it's okay to eat that meat, don't serve that meat there at your potluck, right? He's saying, match the weaker brother get to them on their level and um you're not doing it because you think they're below you you're not doing it um because you think you're better than them you're doing it because of love you're doing it because as paul will go on to say um we need to imitate christ who christ was in the image of god he had the power of god um and he chose to still let himself be killed on a cross. He chose to love and to serve and not be a king, not be an emperor, but to give his life for others. And so imitating that, we need to match his love as well. But what does that look like for us? What, do, what, are, um, what are convictions that can separate us today? You know, I think for one, that you know to go back to our swearing argument it means that because there's people who aren't comfortable with swear words that that's why we don't get up here and use the f word every sunday um even though you could make the argument that all words are clean in christ i think that if you think about things that aren't in the bible that are clean and unclean such as 
in our pandemic right now, masks. If you showed up at a congregation, if you visited a church and they had a sign that said, um, masks must be worn inside, even if the state law right now is that you don't have to wear a mask. If you love your brothers and sisters, you would put a mask on because it's what they are asking. Even if you are fully convinced in the spirit that uh, you have the freedom to not wear a mask, if you really believe God is taking care of you, you don't not wear a mask to prove God's faithfulness. You wear it to prove God's love and your love for those who still want to wear it. Um, and I think that gets into the strong and weak, right? Like, I think that you can make the case that you can say, no, uh, or please wear a mask in church, just as you could say, like, no swearing in church. Um, but it would be really opposite if you put up, if you put up a sign that said only cuss words allowed, right? It doesn't really make sense. And you're offending a whole group of people who might not step into your building. You this is where the strong and weak come into play. If you're the strong faith, you can't really put up a sign that says masks must be required or no masks allowed, right? It's not love. And if it's not love, it's not of Christ because God is love. All right. Um, that being said, unity depends on the strong making accommodations. Just remember the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. It's not the things we do in this life. It's that are physical is the thing we do that are love, that are righteousness, that bring peace and joy, that are from the spirit of God. So therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. If you are not convinced in your heart that something is okay for you to do, then Paul says don't do it. If you do it out of peer pressure or obligation, then it becomes a sin, even if it's not sin because you're... By doing that action, you're not doing it to honor God. You're doing it to please people. The heart of this passage is unity. Paul ends with chapter 15 with that slew of Old Testament passages about the Gentiles. Therefore, I'll praise you among the Gentiles. I'll sing the praises of your names. Rejoice, Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all Gentiles. Let all peoples extol him. And then a few more. The point of those passages is that God from the very beginning, from Abraham, from Noah, from Adam, has desired that all people, both the Jews and Gentiles, are going to become one people who worship him. And that's why Paul quotes the Old Testament a bajillion times here. All peoples are going to come together to worship him. And so what that means is that people have different ideas of what it means to serve and please God. And so we have to let our cultural baggage go. We have to let our convictions not become orthodoxy. I think the temptation is to make, is to let some of our preferences bleed into convictions and our convictions bleed into orthodoxy. But what happens when we do that is if convictions become what we think the core of our faith is about, 
it actually pushes out the other things like grace and Christ's death in order to make it about that one thing. To make it about, no, we need to uh, follow the law and eat the food. Or no, we need to, uh, we're allowed to eat whatever. If that's what we are, the hill we're going to die on, um, then we've developed a whole different faith from the one Christ taught. Part of the message of today is know which battles are worth choosing. But with that being said, there's been a, a brokenness in the American church that I've witnessed in my life. And I have just a few examples of things that have separated us and um, kept us apart that I've actually watched congregations in my lifetime split apart over. I'm not saying that these are issues of strong or weak or morality. I'm just saying that an invitation to think about what does Christian unity based on Romans 14 and 15 look like in these uh, examples. The things I've seen people fight and break over in my life are prerequisites for baptism. Namely, what age is someone able to be baptized and what do you what needs to be said or done before someone can be baptized eligibility for communion theology on the end times affirmation of lgbt community in a congregation and women in leadership what does it look like in for, to bring Romans 14 and 15 into those situations, and can it be brought in? Who are the strong in each of those examples? Who are the weak? Do the strong need to deny themselves, like we talked about, like Christ, who in fully God denied his di divine right and powers to die, to be a servant? Um, to please not himself, but please others? Do the weak need to grow in their faith and acceptance? Do we just need to allow the splitting to happen? Like, for some of these issues, if people are really convicted about one thing or another, if, it, if women in leadership is a conviction issue, and one person really believes in the right to teach in church and someone else's conviction denies uh, their dignity, how does a community form around that? When people are so, when human dignity and worth is at stake, does Paul know what he's talking about? How can you keep community from collapsing when these issues come up? I don't know, and I am afraid that I don't think a lot of people in our church world know. And that's probably why we're seeing such division and split all the time. I think my challenge is that we consider that perhaps the sin of disunity is actually greater than the offense that we're willing to break community over. I want to affirm Redemption Church because I think our little community here in Bristol does a great job at unity. But I'm not sure the capital C big church does, and we're part of that. I want us to think again of the mosaic image I talked about at the beginning. We're the individual pieces 
that make up the bigger picture of Christ. If you look at this final slide, you can see how beautiful it is up close. But first of all, look at how gigantic that is. The, the image of the man standing in front of it, this is like a 20-foot uh, mosaic, right? It's not anything small, so I don't know, I can't conceive of how anyone can have the vision to put those tiny pieces in and know what the bigger picture is going to be. But if you look at the picture from the Hagia Sophia, you'll see that because of different rulers who have ruled over the ages and just wear and tear, that it's not a complete mosaic. Um, the parts are covered up or fallen off. And so the parts that are there are beautiful and mind-boggling, and you can just stand and stare at them for hours in wonder and beauty. But you also take a step back and realize something is missing. It's not a complete picture. And I think that when we allow divisions over convictions and preferences, over disputable matters, as Paul would say, when we let that divide us, we become like that mosaic. Maybe we're beautiful, but we're missing something. And so I, my, my final invitation is remember the gospel. Remember that it's about Christ who died for you, the one Father who made you and made everybody who loves you, who's calling you and all peoples into his kingdom. Remember that that invitation is for you and for everyone and to go and spread that with the world, to act gently in the spirit, not enforcing demands or change by demands and punishment and wrath, but by the fruit of the spirit, patience, love, gentleness. And that in our own congregations, in our own church families, that we don't let things that are not clearly spelled out in scripture divide us. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.